All right, everyone. Welcome to Mining Conversations. I'm your host, Jesse Single, dealing with multiple technical difficulties. One of them of my own making, which is that I have a little dongle that allows me to connect the um, headset mic they send me to an iPhone. I'm missing my dongle. Don't don't quote me directly on that. It sounds very embarrassing, but my, my dongle is nowhere to be found. I might have to get a new one uh, tomorrow. So I have a sort of awkward thing where I'm just talking directly into the thing, but that's okay. I wanted to talk for a minute. I'm mostly just going to take your calls and talk about whatever you want. Feel free to jump in the queue. I want to talk a little bit about the book. Someone put me on the mailing list of a publisher. There's a book coming out, an edited volume, Trust Kids, exclamation mark, stories on youth autonomy and confronting adult supremacy. Here's one of the blurbs. I don't even need to read the author's name. It doesn't matter. Trust Kids is wild and playful and challenging and engaging. Like those playground conversations with other parents. Like stories children tell around kitchen tables. Like the exhilarating possibility that the future is, in fact, in good hands if we just trust kids. I just did a um, newsletter article about what I call juvophilia, which is like, you know, technically love of, of the young. I did that in like a political context with people like... David Hogg or Greta Thunberg. And I, you know, I just find it cringe and embarrassing to imagine that 20 year olds, except in a few like outlying instances, uh, really know, they usually don't know much. There's like a few, sometimes there's a virtuoso in music or the arts or math, but like for the most part, 20 year olds, we don't really know what's up. If you look back at yourself at 20 from age 30, you'll be like, who was that person? Why did they think what they thought? So this I find to be an even, frankly, creepy strain of juvophilia where you're saying like kids you're treating adults as oppressors noah berlatsky my close personal friend once said something close to the effect of adults are oppressors or adults are tyrannous tyranny (laughs) sorry (laughs) adults are tyrants uh kids need to resist the tyranny i don't know man like imagine if you were a parent and your kid came home and was like i met an adult who told me adults are tyrant tyrants and i should get to do what i want i think it's one of those things in like a lot of radical academic spaces where there's probably some reasonable kernels there, but they just, everything has to be maximalized. Everything has to be like as, you know, radical sounding and provocative as possible. Um, I guess I'm guilty of that thing. I accuse others of, of criticizing a book I haven't read. and I'm not going to read, but I've seen this strain of thinking before and it makes me a little bit nervous. I've obviously encountered it the most in like the gender stuff where it's like, Oh, these 12 year olds are discovering new things about gender. And, Usually it's like, uh, no, no, they're not really. They're not really discovering new things. They are just kids. And I don't really understand the resistance to understanding that like um, there is such a thing as developmental psychology and kids might see the world in rigid hues at one point or rigid black and white hues, but they won't later on. Uh, I just don't quite understand the political project of trying to emancipate children. And I think there have been some dark examples in the past of that I'm not saying that's what's going on here, but like actual pedophiles sneaking into movements to give kids more autonomy and separate them from their parents. Um, it's funny for me to bring this up because I'm, I actually have like views on, I sort of, I, I've said this before, but I sort of think the best evidence we have suggests pedophilia is like sort of a sexual orientation and that the best way to make sure pedophiles don't hurt kids is to understand it and like treat them as humans with a horrible condition. So I'm usually in a sense on the other side of this, like when, whenever Katie and I express their t- those takes, they're very unpopular on both the left and right. But I don't know, man, you talk about kids having autonomy or adults being tyrants. I, uh, I don't like that. Um, 
folks should get in the queue if you have anything to say or add. The only other thing I want to talk about briefly was Kyrie Irving. Uh, the guy, Nets uh, guard, superstar basketball player who's going crazy, dabbling in anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. Whenever something like this happens, I really do think a lot about how people get radicalized. And also the this is a point that was brought up on a podcast I was listening to, but all the attention paid on Kyrie Irving and all the think pieces about how bad it is that he sort of endorsed this anti-Semitic documentary caused that documentary to shoot to the top of Amazon. And, uh, you know, you can't not cover a story as spectacular as an NBA player, you know, pointing people toward an anti-Semitic documentary. But I think maybe the lesson here is like a lot of this sort of coverage might have like adverse consequences and might on net spread these ideas further. I know that's definitely true of the sort of blanket coverage of like every racist utterance uttered uh, on any quarter of the internet, despite how many, no matter how few people read it or how popular the community is. Um, I guess Kyrie Irving's like a weird case because he's so famous and what he did is so newsworthy that people have to cover it. But I'm just interested in like these like hypotheticals where if you could like split off the universe and do universe B and in that one, it just got less coverage would that actually lead to less anti-Semitism in the long run? Like all the sort of loud debunkings and denunciations? Um, I don't know. I'm very depressed at... Uh, it is sort of like a unique form of bigotry. There aren't a lot of forms of bigotry that have like this continuity to them that goes back thousands of years and where you can be so sure it will always exist everywhere uh, in every form. So that was... Uh, Kyrie Irving things. I don't know how many basketball fans I have here, but it's just amazing watching some of these guys who have like the best lives imaginable, but they have such broken personalities. They'll just like always squander it. it it's sad. It's a hard position to imagine. Neil, what's up? I let me see if I can hear you without this mic. Neil, how's it going? Hey, hey, Jesse. So on the topic of that documentary, this one comedian I follow, Danny Polischuk, he like watched the documentary and like reviewed it and he's Jewish. So he was like talking about like what was like anti-Semitic and what was, you know, potentially uh, interesting from it. And then he got striked on YouTube and he, and now he can't live stream because YouTube took it down, even though he was being super critical of the. Really? Just, so just for giving a review that was like critical of it, but more yeah. nuanced than this is the worst thing ever. I take it. Yep. The, mm -hmm. um, I mean, there's a whole other story now going on with like Kiwi farms, basically getting pulled off the um, the internet because like some of these backbone of the internet companies won't let anyone go there. But uh, yeah, people should be more skeptical of uh, the power these companies have. And people are not very skeptical or reflective about, I don't know, it, it just bugs me. These, these policies are so unevenly applied and often so opaque and, and, you know, who does get in trouble for violating the terms of service, who's allowed to slide. I, I think it leads to a lot of distrust and conspiracy theorizing and obviously fuels the rise of like mostly right wing sort of alternatives to places like YouTube. Yeah. And then totally separately, I wanted to call in today to ask about, so what you would call this is like, maybe you can quibble about like the terminology, but like darkening your skin to like, like with like paint or something like not in like a racist way. Right. Because there's two definitions of blackface, right? There's like specifically like minstrel show racist blackface. And then there's like, some would also call like any kind of darkening your skin with like paint or like not tanning as blackface. Right. So like the word is dirty, whatever, like put, putting the word aside, but like, 
like for like Halloween costumes and stuff. Why is that? What are your thoughts on that? And like, why is it, why is it bad? Cause I don't, I don't understand why people. Don't uh, I mean, I think it's, it's bad because it reminds people of stuff that was bad and that's not necessarily coherent, but once people have communicated a social norm that loudly, you should just follow it because in this case, there's not really any principle at stake for like why you should wear blackface. But uh, yeah, I think the, well, if you, I mean, I don't know. I want to push back on two fronts. One, if there's a social norm, you shouldn't follow it just because it's a social norm. That's stupid. I well, think I'm there's, tons of in this social case, there's no, there's no principle worth pushing back on. Yes. Well, so I'm, so this is connected to the other thing I mentioned, but like, like if you want to portray a character, character accurately, I, I totally think it's, it should be fine to, to darken your skin or lighten your skin to look like the character. I think it's, I think, yeah, like this is what Megan Kelly was canceled for, but. Yeah, I think it's ridiculous that for Halloween costumes or for like any reason that you can't like darken or lighten your skin just to like look a certain way. I think it's I think it's I think it, it it's anti post racial, right? Because in this is how like Sam Harris would define post racial, right? As like where skin color is treated just like hair color, right? And so people like like dye their hair, right? They like darken and lighten their hair. So then why would we treat skin color any differently? I just don't I think it's well, I mean I don't again and, I don't and, think uh I don't think the act of putting dark paint on your skin literally harms anyone, but it's just, it reminds people of minstrel shows or blackface in that context. But, but so what? Like they should get over themselves. I don't know. I think it's just, I think the intention does matter. And I think that, that, I, yeah, I think there should be more pushback. And I think it's, it really saddens me that this is like, just we've lost on this front, even though it's like, it makes no um, sense. I think like if you're going to fight against social norms, you need, there's an element in which picking your battles is important. So like when I, say stuff even though I think it'll offend people I can usually explain like it sounds like your principle here is just like this doesn't quite make sense and we could have better Halloween costumes if people could color their skin which is that might make, be true on some level but it's just not like important enough to risk the wrath you will incur I would say I mean but but it is I, I, I think you should fight every battle right? <laughs> I, I don't I think I don't know I just don't no I think if you ever cave because of potential backlash then you're not like being true to I don't know I think I think you should just always fight every yeah. battle, then. I think I that know. you you'll you burn out quickly if you do that. But I, I get what you're saying. But um, yeah, thank, thank yeah. And then it's also interesting because like Japan is not like this. Like it's like kind of changing, but Japan like doesn't well, they care have at a all. Very different ratio, right? And so like when it comes to anime cosplays, yeah. it's like. Uh, yeah. Anyway, thank you for the call, though. Patrick. What's up, Patrick? Hey, Jesse. Happy, Happy Friday. Friday. Oh, so I'm a little bit torn because right at the end of your uh, intro, you mentioned three different areas to I wanted to kind of touch on. So I'll start with uh, the juvenile oppression thing. I think anyone who seriously believes that should probably watch a little known television show called Kid Nation and read all the behind the scenes dirt on what happened when they were filming it. This is the Japanese game show on Netflix right now, or is this a different one? Oh, no, no. The, the Netflix one is called something else. I'm sorry. Remind yeah, me that's, the, that's the one about, like, letting kids go to the store or whatever. This yeah, is right. uh, the one that I think is more to what I would assume uh, child liberationists want, which is, it was, I think, on ABC, but in 2007, there was a reality show where they took a bunch of kids under 18, put them in the middle of the desert, and said, basically, form your own society. And it went really well, I take it. Went really well, really well. No kids got poisoned from uh, not being able to disinfect things. 
Uh, they didn't have any problems with all having to share one outhouse. Things went really, really well, leaving the kids uh, there. I think it got canceled midway through the season, uh, the series run because people were so horrified by the idea of just like abandoning children out in the middle of the desert and telling them. I'm very surprised. I got to go back and revisit this. I'm very surprised this show got made. Oh, yeah. It, 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 I, I remember it. It was basically everyone around the time was like, you, you can't be serious, right? But no, that's the kind of thing. Uh, uh, next, I, I guess I would want to go to the Kyrie stuff, which is, I don't really know. I think your point about how the media coverage of it has led to kind of an uptake in like eyes viewing this documentary. I don't necessarily know if I see a problem with that because it's kind of the morbid curiosity when a famous person starts believing what are essentially crackpot theories? You kind of want to go see what are exactly the crackpot theories are. So yeah. I can kind of understand it. I mean, even like the Red Scare Girls, they did a review of the Buck Breaking uh, documentary. Oh, I actually listened to that. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't necessarily, I think there's a certain kind of view on the left that if people are exposed. Tell everyone what, remind everyone or tell people what Buck Breaking is. It's, this is an incredible subculture like or, or cultural argument. Uh, so buck breaking, uh, it specifically, I think, refers to practices uh, from slavery and like uh, colonial times where in order to basically uh, get like the fighting spirit out of men, you would have to beat them in uh, male slaves. You'd have to beat them into submission. So the idea of buck breaking in the modern sense is that the black male has basically been buck, buck broken spiritually uh, to be compliant with kind of white ideals. So part of the buck breaking is also kind of a feminization of black men. So a lot of the documentary is kind of how gay people are causing the buck breaking of black men. So like, Sorry, I shouldn't laugh. This is all comes from a very dark place. But I just remember I hadn't heard of any of this when I listened to the Red Scare Girls talk about it. Yeah. And I think the what was it? Uh, Judge Joe Brown, one of the TV judges is like on the documentary. It's just all like kind of. It's weirdo conspiracy stuff. And I, I understand what you mean about laughing about it because there is a certain point where like hate gets so wacky. It's kind of like, you can't honestly believe this, do you? Yeah. Think- well, that's true with a lot of like Jews such as myself making fun of anti-Semitism because it's so out there. Like, you know, when Borat is singing, throw the Jew down the well, it's just, it's so ridiculous that you're taking something dark and you have to make fun of it. Yeah, and specifically, I think there's like a weird rise in the black Israelite kind of thing. Because I yeah. think like where Kyrie stuff is, and that's all like the Kanye stuff. And even with like Kanye, I do have to say there's that video of him talking about his Jewish doctor that is very Trumpian in like the kind of funny way where it's like he's very clearly being racist, but he's also just kind of funny about it. <laughs> and, right, yeah. I don't know. I feel bad for even saying that, but at the same time, it's like, it's so clearly absurd that I can't see why anybody would be worried about it kind of infecting others. Yeah. But the underlying thing is that it is. So I guess, uh, I don't know. I'd like to have more faith in other people that by watching a documentary, they won't be mind poisoned. I think there's a lot of views specifically on the left and actually on the right too, with book bannings that the idea that harmful thoughts kind of infect you like a virus. Yeah, I guess um, I might have left out the possibility that a lot of those are just hate watches or curiosity watches. And to be actually, I don't even know if it's a free documentary or if you have to pay for it, which is an important thing I should have looked into. Yeah, if it was paid for, I, I'd imagine people having a harder time kind of looking at it. Yeah. Uh, but, anyway, that's a fair point, I think. 
Yeah. Uh, that's it for me. The only other thing I would say would be I, uh, I'm very sympathetic to you and Katie's point on the pedophilia. Hopefully no one comes on here to harangue you guys about it. I just I worry about the current way how destigmatization is going in our society that uh, people will kind of basically people aren't going to say, like, this is a thing that people need help and treatment with. People will just go, actually, we should destigmatize it, and normalize it. Because yeah, a large amount of that kind of going on. And those two, obvi- those two don't seem to be doing well right now. I find a lot of people say, oh, so you're saying we should normalize it. I find more people accusing others of saying that than I actually find anyone calling for its normalization. Um, but I'm sure in the darker corners of the Internet, that's true. And there, there is some history uh, on the left of this occasionally happening. But yeah, to be clear. It's mostly like in Europe with the French and the Germans. The French and the Germans. Yeah, well, I mean, French intellectuals in like the 70s or 80s, it was just like completely normalized. It was really fucked up. Anyway, some dark subjects, but thank you for the call. All right. Later, Jesse. Bye. Hey, what is up? Hey, Jesse, how are you keeping? Good, how are you? I'm pretty good, uh, but I'm a little bit worried because uh, I'm about to wade into some pretty controversial territory with you and I could go badly wrong. Like uh, it's uh, what, what you were talking about with Patrick just there, actually, at the end of what you mentioned earlier um, about um, yourself and Katie um, talking about paedophilia in the past and, uh, you know, discussing like potential uh, alternative views and treatments to try and ultimately like reduce um the incidence of like children getting abused etc which is like obviously the the appropriate end end point and uh i agree with all that and like straight out but i just think like before uh, going any further i would just say that like anyone who abuses a child anyone who like uh produces child porn anything like that like is an absolute like scumbag and needs to you know have the book thrown at them like that that is like the obvious starting point in any of this conversation um, because like, oh, totally. you know th- that act is obviously horrific but like uh, I had this argument with a friend years ago and uh, like I, the way I kind of discussed it with him at the time is like I view it in two ways like uh, impulse and impulse control and like first of all like the impulse in and of itself like just the way I look at things is that like none of us actually uh, control or like ultimately generate the impulses that we have we don't choose what impulses we have in terms of like our sexual orientation etc like no one chooses to be straight or no one chooses to be gay and obviously i don't think anyone would choose to be what is ultimately like the most horrific um and taboo sexual orientation uh, you know of, of all yeah. the sexual orientations which is to be a pedophile like no one would choose so i have sympathy for people who have that impulse and i kind of view myself as fortunate that like I just don't have any like uh, really shameful, bizarre impulses like that would like, you know, get me in legal trouble. Like obviously embarrassing if people knew my particular whatever, like peccadillos or kinks or whatever. But it's <laughs> yeah. the same as for anyone like, you know, so I, like I, I have no like, but it would be obviously horrific if you did have an impulse to be a pedophile. But then like I look at it in terms of impulse control and like can we support people's impulse, like improve people's impulse control so that they don't actually act on it? And if we can do that and that and and prevent people being abused then that's obviously something that should be done and like we shouldn't shame the individuals for having the impulse but we should shame anyone who engages in the act and i think if you can look at it in that way it kind of um i think you know uh, i think it's the like clearest way to look at it as opposed to completely stigmatizing anyone who has who is born with that impulse um 
versus like completely trying to legitimize it and saying that like you know like let, let them do what they want type of thing like there is a middle ground and i think people should be able to advocate for it without like being themselves being accused of being like sympathetic to like kitty fiddlers and, and child abusers like you know no one no, you and katie aren't i am not like but like it's it's a hard uh conversation to have because like so many people their reflex is just to, to throw that at you straight away that like you are supporting people who, who abuse children like yeah no i mean i i um i agree and what you're describing is the direction like clinical work with that population has headed. <clears throat> i had a story killed i was working on but um i i traveled a little and i met with clinicians who worked with these guys i, I talked to like a pedophile himself who's like in his 80s and there's a huge amount of like if you're a clinician you develop a relationship with these guys they're they're mostly guys um you it's it's partly impulse control but partly just like cognitive behavioral stuff and teaching them to develop habits that won't put them anywhere near kids because you actually at the end of the day you don't want to have for them to have to rely on impulse controls you want them to not be in that situation in the first place it's a completely offensive analogy but if I have potato chips in the house, I will always eat them. Uh, if I yes. just don't have chips in the house, it's a horrible analogy. I apologize. But um, it was inter- it's just been interesting talking to some psychologists who do that kind of work. But I'm with you. The whole, they, their whole thing is like they don't want these guys to feel like horrible human beings over stuff they have no control over. They want them to feel empowered not to act on these urges because uh, they understand the consequences. True, definitely. But at the same time, also, I think there's probably only like a very – um select cohort where that would even be possible i think like i don't know if you ever listened to there's a very good podcast called hunting warhead um it's done by like the cnbc or whatever it is over in canada it's brilliant it's like a six-part series but it's about like this uh internet uh, or child pedophile um uh ring on the dark web where they were like um distributing images and stuff and then some of them were doing it in real life as well and they were talking to one young guy who was like the moderator and actually engaged in real life and they were asking him about like supports and stuff and he just ultimately admitted that like regardless of what help he got he he would have still done it like and so i think like there are people who maybe you may be able to help who we should help because the ultimate goal like is for them not to abuse children uh but if there are there are probably a significant cohort who you can't help either and they probably should like yeah maybe just limited from children in whatever way we can like uh in terms of like as yeah you said, so they need like, to be locked up obviously the ones who I mean yeah there, I think there's a range there but um anyway one, no I agree can I say that. one last one last thing it's just a, sure. an observation on uh like uh did you say I, I never heard the term before earlier juvenophile is that it is that what you uh, uh juvophilia I I think juvophilia. I made it up it's not it doesn't roll off the tongue but yeah is it yeah but like I, one thing I noticed before is like pedophile I think is like the only file kind of word like that's a negative everything else is kind of like a if, you, if you're like a an anglophile like that's not a negative thing like you just like english things like if you're a bibliophile like you know it's a, you know, you like books or whatever like oh, but pedophile like is like you know obviously well I, I think but i think actually it's almost like a misnomer like pedophile like it, like the, it just means to like to like like children like children yeah it, it doesn't necessarily mean to be like a child abuser like so right. like i think we should reclaim the word pedophile, like you know, like. Uh, and, and <laughs> I love the... my I love my kids. I'm a pedophile. <laughs> yeah, like all teachers should be pedophiles. Like they should like children. All, like, if you're gonna all be teachers teacher, should be pedophiles. Should be pedophile. That's a good question. Parents <laughs> should be pedophiles at least to their own children, like, but fuck pedophiles, fuck like. Exactly. If you, if you understand what I'm saying, like. We're gonna start a movement. Thank you for the call. All right. Eli, what's up? I'm. Uh, I won't ask if you can hear me. I just assume that you can. 
I can hear you. Yeah. Yes. Okay. I'm, you know, the cognitive behavioral stuff. I'm developing habits of not asking if you hear me. There but you um, uh, I'm also glad to be after A because I always like his questions and he seems like a fun guy. Agreed. Yeah. Um, I have to, I have a, actually the whole anti-Semitism thing, whenever you look at um, anything about anti-Semitism, but especially now from Kanye, you see all the comments, even when he says stuff that to me as a Jewish person seems incredibly anti-Semitic. You have yeah. people saying, oh, a variant either saying, where's the lie? Or I don't get what's anti-Semitic about this. Yeah, and it reminds me how like Jews and non-Jews can conceive of anti-Semitism completely differently. And one of the ways that affected me is that, um, well, I was once in uh, England. I was 20. I met this guy from Wales um, at a gay club. He was the, I was the first Jewish person he'd ever met. I had that oh, wow. honor. Yes. Interesting conversation. What can I say? And then we went to this, we, we just walked and when he, and he just said like kind of out of the blue, he said, if I were racist, you know, Orthodox Jews, I'd say that they're, they're ostentatious. They like money too much. <laughs> if I were racist. If I were racist. And the thing, I started laughing like crazy because he said it so nonchalantly. Yeah. Um, and because I realized, and that's happened to me a few times, that non-Jews who know very little about Jewish culture don't get that I and the Orthodox are in the same group. Right. <laughs> they don't see me as um. What a, what, one of my only run-ins with genuine anti-Semitism, I was in Berlin. I went on a date with, with a girl who was actually from Pittsburgh or outside <laughs> Pittsburgh. Sorry. And she, I didn't develop, I didn't experience any encounter, any anti-Semitism from Germans. I mean, I, I didn't go around announcing I was Jewish, but this girl just very casually said something about like, when I said I was Jewish, I made a joke about like Jews always having money. And she didn't know it was anti-Semitic. She just thought it was like an observation. What did she say? I didn't hear that. She just said something about like, why do Jews always have money? Or yeah, very close I, I wish that, that were true, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, so, um, and the other, so that was the first thing to seeing that, how, how deep, or in a sense, depressing that is. Um, there are my other experiences that I got on in a taxi and the guy, I'm from Israel, so when he found that out, he said, you know, I, uh, he said, he asked if I'm Jewish. I said, yeah, he says, I, I never understood why everyone hates you so much. <laughs> Which was very nice, uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's developed again into an interesting conversation. Um, my other shows of vision. So, you read the New York Times piece, of course, you tweeted about it. So, the New York Times piece about misdiagnosis, yeah, um, TikTok stuff, yeah. I wonder, did, did you also get the impression that they were viewing it as a largely positive thing, the TikTok awareness? No, I, I'd have to reread it. I thought they it was like. Even this could help raise awareness, but obviously, in some cases, these kids think they yeah. have diagnoses, uh, diseases they don't have. Yeah, of course. Um, they also only interviewed marriage and family therapists, actually, exclusively. I have no oh, that's interesting. Yeah, okay. So, thank you, Jesse, and uh, Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. <laughs> Julia, how's it going? Julia, you got to hit. There you go. What's up? There I am. Uh, I was wondering if you, uh, noticed the Florida thing. Uh, I, oh, I haven't been following the news. I take it they passed it? Yes, I believe that they have, they have, uh, they have deemed pediatric gender transition to be experimental, 
um, therapy that should only be occurring under the auspices of an IRB approved research clinical trial. Yeah. Clinical trial. Uh, yeah, I knew they were like on the verge of passing that. I, I don't, I, I've been meaning to catch up on this. I don't have a good sense of the bureaucracy in Florida. Is this like final or what other steps does it have to go through? I think it might be final. I think at this point it goes to court cases, but right. this is much, this is a much more intelligent strategy than just like, we're going to outlaw it um, because they are grandfathering in all of the kids that are currently getting um, this care. Right. So they're, no one's going to have to like sort of sort forcibly of, detransition or anything. Right. No one's going to have to forcibly detransition. It's just saying that we can't be transitioning more kids unless it's part of a uh of an actual research protocol yeah so i mean for anyone not listening this is julia mason she's a she's a doctor who writes a lot about all this stuff online and does some research and is skeptical of youth transition i i need to look more into the florida stuff i've been very behind on everything i i <laughs> think i would in this is definitely better than laws. It's definitely much better than what Texas is doing. I, um, part of me just still worries. It's a little bit too heavy handed. On the other hand, I don't, I guess I feel like this subset of activists who are like true believers on this stuff and who mm -hmm. broadcast true belief. I just don't get what their strategy is politically because it's like, okay, the, the super far right Ron DeSantis led Florida now has the same policy as like Finland, right? Right, Finland, so just, Sweden. This is very right. similar to what Sweden has set up. Yeah, there's been like a level of short sightedness um, when it comes to the actual evidence. We just recorded a podcast on this, but like, uh, what what's what's the argument? You, I know what the argument will be, which is that this will literally kill kids, which is always the argument. But the fact is, you now have you now have Florida with like the same policies as two healthcare systems liberals tend to admire. So I, I don't know. I just don't, politically, I don't understand what the strategy is because you can only repeat that like you're killing kids so many times before people stop listening, right? I, I mean, I think so. I, and I'm not sure. You know, I feel like the the Florida Medical Board did did the best they could. You know, it's really hard to figure out how to deal with this you know the horses are way out of the barn They're yeah just running all over the place <laughs> and, and we have to yeah. we have we need some data you know we don't we don't really know that's the craziest thing bad. is just the lack of any one of the things we mentioned in this episode is american clinicians saying either they have a very low regret rate or they know there is a very low regret rate when like none of them have collected any data or decent data. And some of the ones who claim a very low regret rate have pretty high loss to follow up rates. So yeah, a lot yeah, of this seems self-inflected from the point of view of like some, the trans activists who don't want this to happen. Like you just, they never bother to actually, you know, get their empirical ducks in a row. And I think that's going to just make this more of a culture war thing, which isn't going to help anybody. Yeah. Yeah. We'll anyway. Thanks Julia. Yeah. KW will have to be the last call. Neil, I'll get you next time. Hey, Jesse. Happy Friday. Happy Friday. How's it going? Pretty good. Uh, I guess a couple of things about some of the topics you brought up. First of all, this whole juvophilia thing, I've definitely seen it too, especially with regard to David Hogg and the Parkland kids. I know a guy who's pushing 50 and he's just 
obsessed with them. It is, it's harmless, but it's also kind of cringe. And yeah, I do wonder about, about all that is, I wonder if how much of it dates back to the just the millennials versus boomers culture war. You know, the idea that boomers ruin the economy. We have too many old people in politics. We have all these 70-year-olds running for president. Therefore, the kids are the future. Yay, kids. Right. It's like whatever you don't like, the opposite must be true. Yeah, I think that's part of what's going on here. I mean, you know, there's always some short-sightedness. But once again, it's one of those run in the other direction kind of deals. And also with Kyrie Irving, you know, I am one of the bar pod slash single-minded listeners who's a basketball fan. I do not like Kyrie Irving just from a basketball perspective alone. I'll tell yeah. you that. He's proven to be a selfish teammate. And really anytime a team like the Brooklyn Nets or anybody tries to create a super team, I, I root like crazy for that team. Because I, I just you're cutting out, but you're you saying you mean? root against you're saying you root against them like crazy. Oh, sorry. I generally root against any NBA team that tries to create a super team. Yeah, it's, well, it's you much know, more. So if you have like the opposite of that is the the poster and Golden State Warriors, where it's all homegrown talent, and the Celtics, who people hate for other legitimate reasons. It's just mostly <laughs> the same deal those teams are much more satisfying because it's like the organization did a good job drafting and filling in the gaps with trades and stuff. I know I agree. It's very hard to like a team like the Nets or like the LeBron era heat. I think. Ditto with the Milwaukee Bucks, Giannis Antetokounmpo. That, that was another fun champion to watch. Yeah, absolutely. But with Kyrie and here's another thing I wonder, and you guys actually brought this up in your live show with Andrew Tate, which is that, the more somebody like him is highlighted and the more people are just yelling and yelling, yelling, fuck you, you piece of shit, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I, I wonder about the internet's impact on that because when you have a million people yelling at you, it can just become so easy to feel alienated, wander off into another echo chamber where everybody's nice to you and you therefore get more radicalized. I think yeah. the internet's a huge deal. Yeah, I think I brought this up on the last episode, but in Kyrie's case, I'm curious if he would have gone down the same uh, rabbit holes, you know, starting with the flat earth stuff and then the uh, COVID stuff and now this um, without the backlash that I'm sure he's aware of. So I think a lot, yeah, I just think a lot of the time, the reactive nature of the internet, it might feel good to yell at someone or put them in their place or fact check them, but I just think it often has unintended consequences. It does. And there is one other thing. Uh, the last time I called in, one of the later callers, I think, made an interesting point that got me thinking. I admit, I think I'm a little guilty of whenever you see Republicans doing well, I say, oh, it's the wokeness. It's got to be the wokeness. I think right. I'm a little guilty of that myself sometimes, too. But, you know, I'm also fascinated by, like, what is it? that makes people turn from left to right. Like how do people who are staunch Democrats turn? Yeah. I, I think that's like obviously a million dollar question. I do think for national yeah. elections, there's like, I think I mentioned this last time too, but there's predictable patterns where like if one uh, party controls all three branches and, and wins and a new president goes in, 
uh, that first midterm is you're going to have a bad time. Like Obama, 2010, Trump, there was backlash mm-hmm. in 18. So I think that's why I'm skeptical of like specific stories. Like I said last time, in specific races, maybe it is wokeness. Maybe it is a battle over mass. Um, but overall, you would have expected the Democrats to have a bad time. So if they do have a bad time Tuesday, that will be True. not surprising. I am a little fascinated by what's happening with Oregon because there's a legit chance a Republican governor could win there. And I somebody wrote on Barry Weiss's substack about how the homeless issue has been a huge problem and, and how that's turning people off. I don't know enough about Oregon to to say for sure, but you know, I just you know like you say a million times, it's complicated. And I just wonder what the factors are that, that make individual voters switch back and forth. Yeah. No, I think those like sort of quality of life issues are potent. Um, and if it's just, you can't really ignore them. I think there's a little bit of denialism that in some parts of the country, crime has gotten worse. It'll always be the case that Republicans try to mm-hmm. exaggerate it or try to demonize homeless people. But People like to feel safe in their neighborhoods and to, that things are going well. So, yeah, it's complicated. That's all I can say about it. That's your catchphrase. It is. Thanks, man. Thanks, KW. Uh, guys, I'm going to have to wrap it up there, but I appreciate you all for tuning in. I appreciate I appreciate you all tuning in. That's why I have to wrap it up. I'm, I'm losing my ability to speak. But, uh, yeah, I hope you all have a good weekend. Um, and as always, I would just ask you to tell other people about the show. Uh, But yeah, I think that's about it. Happy Friday, everybody.